Chapters 15 and 16 of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 from The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. Joan. To arrive at a just estimate of a renowned man's character, one must judge it by the standards of his time, not ours. Judged by the standards of one century, the noblest characters of an earlier one lose much of their lustre. Judged by the standards of today, there is probably no illustrious man of four or five centuries ago whose character could meet the test at all points. But the character of Joan of Arc is unique. It can be measured by the standards of all times without misgiving or apprehension as to the result. Judged by any of them, judged by all of them, it is still flawless. It is still ideally perfect. It occupies the loftiest place possible to human attainment, a loftier one than has been reached by any other mere mortal. When we reflect that her century was the brutalist, the wickedest, the rottenest in history since the Dark Ages, we are lost in wonder at the miracle of such a product from such a soil. The contrast between her and her century is the contrast between day and night. She was truthful when lying was the common speech of men. She was honest when honesty was become a lost virtue. She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of a promise was expected of no one. She gave her great mind to great thoughts and great purposes when other great minds wasted themselves upon pretty fancies or upon poor ambitions. She was modest and fine and delicate, when to be loud and coarse might be said to be universal. She was full of pity when a merciless cruelty was the rule. She was steadfast when stability was unknown, and honourable in an age which had forgotten what honour was. She was a rock of convictions in a time when men believed in nothing and scoffed at all things. She was unfailingly true in an age that was false to the core. She maintained her personal dignity unimpaired in an age of fawnings and servilities. She was of a dauntless courage when hope and courage had perished in the hearts of her nation. She was spotlessly pure in mind and body when society in the highest places was foul in both. She was all these things in an age when crime was the common business of lords and princes, and when the highest personages in Christendom were able to astonish even that infamous era and make it stand aghast at the spectacle of their atrocious lives, black with unimaginable treacheries, butcheries, and bestialities. She was, perhaps, the only entirely unselfish person whose name has a place in profane history. No vestige or suggestion of self-seeking can be found in any word or deed of hers. When she had rescued her king from his vagabondage, and set his crown upon his head, she was offered rewards and honours, but she refused them all, and would take nothing. All she would take for herself, if the king would grant it, was leave to go back to her village home, and tend her sheep again, and feel her mother's arms about her, and be her housemaid and helper. The selfishness of this unspoiled general of victorious army, companion of princes, an idol of an applauding and grateful nation, reached but that far and no farther. The Fairy Tree 
in a noble open space carpeted with grass on the high ground toward vaucouleurs stood a most majestic beech tree with wide-reaching arms and a grand spread of shade and by it a limpid spring of cold water and on summer days the children went there oh every summer for more than five hundred years went there and sang and danced around the tree for hours together refreshing themselves at the spring from time to time and it was most lovely and enjoyable also they made wreaths of flowers and hung them upon the tree and about the spring to please the fairies that lived there for they liked that being idle innocent little creatures as all fairies are and fond of anything delicate and pretty like wild flowers put together in that way and in return for this attention the fairies did any friendly thing they could for the children such as keeping the spring always full and clear and cold and driving away serpents and insects that sting and so there was never any unkindness between the fairies and the children during more than five hundred years tradition said a thousand but only the warmest affection and the most perfect trust and confidence and whenever a child died the fairies mourned just as that child's playmates did and the sign of it was there to see for before the dawn on the day of the funeral they hung a little immortelle over the place where the child was used to sit under the tree i know this to be true by my own eyes it is not hearsay and the reason it was known that the fairies did it was this that it was made all of black flowers of a sort not known in france anywhere now from the time immemorial all children reared in Domremy were called the children of the tree and they loved that name for it carried with it a mystic privilege not granted to any other of the children of this world which was this whenever one of these came to die then beyond the vague and formless images drifting through his darkening mind rose soft and rich and fair a vision of the tree if all was well with his soul that was what some said others said the vision came in two ways once as a warning one or two years in advance of death when the soul was the captive of sin and then the tree appeared in its desolate winter aspect then that soul was smitten with an awful fear if repentance came and purity of life the vision came again this time summer-clad and beautiful but if it were otherwise with that soul the vision was withheld and it passed from life knowing its doom still others said that the vision came but once and then only to the sinless dying forlorn in distant lands and pitifully longing for some last dear reminder of their home and what reminder of it could go to their hearts like the picture of the tree that was the darling of their love and the comrade of their joys and comforter of their small griefs all through the divine days of their vanished youth now the several traditions were as i have said some believing one and some another one of them i know to be the truth and that was the last one i do not say anything against the others i think they were true but i only know that the last one was and it is my thought that if one keep to the things he knows and not trouble about the things which he cannot be sure about he will have the steadier mind for it 
and there is proof in that. I know that when the children of the tree die in a far land, then, if they be at peace with God, they turn their longing eyes toward home, and there, far shining, as through a rift in a cloud that curtains heaven, they see the soft picture of the fairy tree, clothed in a dream of golden light, and they see the blooming meads sloping away to the river, and to their perishing nostrils is blown faint and sweet the fragrance of the flowers of home. And then the vision fades and passes, but they know, they know, and by their transfigured faces you know also, you stand looking on, yes, you know the message that has come, and that it has come from heaven. Joan and I believed alike about this matter, but Pierre Morel and Jacques d'Arc, and many others believed that the vision appeared twice, to a sinner. In fact, they and many others said they knew it, probably because their fathers had known it, and had told them, for one gets most things at second hand in this world. Always, from the remotest times, when the children joined hands and danced around the fairy tree, they sang the song which was the tree's song, the song of L'arbre fille du pauvre Lemon. They sang it to a quaint sweet air, a solacing sweet air, which has gone murmuring through my dreaming spirit all my life, when I was weary and troubled, resting me and carrying me through night and distance home again. No stranger can know or feel what that song has been through the drifting centuries to exiled children of the tree, homeless and heavy of heart, in countries foreign to their speech and ways. You will think it a simple thing, that song, and poor, perchance. But if you will remember what it was to us, and what it brought before our eyes when it floated through our memories, then you will respect it, and you will understand how the water wells up in our eyes, and makes all things dim, and our voices break, and we cannot sing the last lines. And when in exile wandering, we shall, fainting, yearn for glimpse of thee, oh, rise upon our sight. And you will remember that Joan of Arc sang this song with us around the tree when she was a little child, and always loved it, and that hallows it, yes, you will grant that. L'arbre fille du bourg Song of the Children Now what has kept your leaves so green, arbre fille du bourg The children's tears, they brought each grief and you did comfort them and cheer their bruised hearts, and steal a tear that healed rose a leaf. And what has built you up so strong, arbre fille de Bourlemont? The children's love, they've loved you long, ten hundred years in sooth. They've nourished you with praise and song, and warmed your heart, and kept it young, a thousand years of youth. Bide always green in our young hearts, Arbre fille de Bourlemont, and we shall always youthful be, not heeding time his flight. And when, in exile wandering, we shall, fainting, yearn for glimpse of thee, oh, rise upon our sight. Joan before Reyaz We marched, marched, 
kept on marching, and at last, on the 16th of July, we came in sight of our goal, and saw the great cathedral of towers of Reims rise out of the distance. Huzzah after huzzah swept the army from van to rear, and as for Joan of Arc, there where she sat on her horse, gazing, clothed all in white armour, dreamy, beautiful, and in her face a deep, deep joy, a joy not of earth, oh, she was not flesh, she was a spirit. Her sublime mission was closing, closing in flawless triumph. Tomorrow she could say, It is finished, let me go free. Joan's Reward the fantastic dream, the incredible dream, the impossible dream of the peasant child stood fulfilled. The English power was broken, the heir of France was crowned. She was like one transfigured, so divine was the joy that shone in her face as she sank to her knees at the king's feet and looked up at him through her tears. Her lips were quivering, and her words came soft and low and broken. Now, O gentle king, is the pleasure of God accomplished, according to his command, that you should come to Reaz, and receive the crown that belongeth of right to you, and unto none other. My work which was given me to do is finished. Give me your peace, and let me go back to my mother, who is poor and old, and has need of me. The king raised her up, and there before all that host, he praised her great deeds in most noble terms, and there he confirmed her nobility and titles, making her the equal of a count in rank, and also appointed a household and officers for her, according to her dignity, and then he said, You have saved the crown. Speak, require, demand, and whatsoever grace you ask it shall be granted, though it make the kingdom poor to meet it. Now that was fine, that was loyal. Joan was on her knees again, straight away, and said, Then, O gentle king, if out of your compassion you will speak the word, I pray you give commandment that my village, poor and hard-pressed by reason of the war, may have its taxes remitted. It is so commanded. Say on. That is all. All? Nothing but that? It is all. I have no other desire. But that is nothing, less than nothing. Ask, do not be afraid. Indeed I cannot, gentle king. Do not press me. I will not have aught else, but only this alone. The king seemed nonplussed, and stood still for a moment, as if trying to comprehend and realize the full stature of this strange unselfishness. Then he raised his head and said, she has won a kingdom and crowned its king, and all she asks, and all she will take, is this poor grace, and even this is for others, not for herself. And it is well, her act being proportioned to the dignity of one who carries in her head and heart riches which outvalue any that any king could add, though he gave his all. She shall have her way. Now, therefore, it is decreed that from this day forth Domremy, natal village of Joan of Arc, deliverer of France, called the Maid of Orléans, is freed from all taxation forever. Chapter 16 from Saint Joan of Arc 
1899. There is no one to compare her with, none to measure her by, for all others among the illustrious grew towards their high place in an atmosphere and surroundings which discovered their gift to them, and nourished it and promoted it, intentionally or unconsciously. There have been other young generals, but they were not girls, young generals, but they have been soldiers before they were generals. She began as a general. She commanded the first army she ever saw. She led it from victory to victory, and never lost a battle with it. There have been young commanders-in-chief, but none so young as she. She is the only soldier in history who has held the supreme command of a nation's armies at the age of seventeen. End of chapters 15 and 16